the trustworthiness of God is of great importance to his followers. If we are to walk by faith, the knowing that the God that we are following is trustable is imperative. So let's look to the word again and be reminded that it is our Lord who can be followed like a good shepherd. Please take your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and we'll read verses 19 through 21. This will be our text for this morning. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. You will say to me then, I'll explain what that means. It's based on the previous paragraph. What Paul meant to say is what he said, and the reader understood what he was saying, and now has an objection to it. So they say, why does he, being God, still find fault? Who can resist his will? If God is ultimate in determining hardness and repentance, then who can be to blame because who can resist his will? The response to that portion of the question, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You can be seated I just want to say that right now is when we would normally be dismissing children to Children's Church or Route 316, but since we are not yet doing that, if you didn't yet, you can pick out a child packet in the lobby in a plastic bag. If you, haven't, if you don't have one, feel free to walk back and grab one. If, um, if you maybe have older children, you will also notice that on the information tower, there is a sermon notes template for children. So maybe your child is a little older and you'd like to use one of those. I want to remind you that those two things are both there. If you are joining us online, I want to remind you that it seems that the website live stream is more consistent than the Facebook live stream. And if you are online, you will also notice that there is a location there for the sermon notes PDF. That's also on the church homepage. As I get started, I was thinking this week about how much I still struggle to get the big picture when it comes to the revelation of God. Have your children ever heard part of a conversation between parents and then come to really confident conclusions about what's being discussed or what's about to happen? That happens in our home because my children can perceive most of what we're talking about, but sometimes they get small snapshots of the whole conversation, and then they come to these really confident conclusions. Well, you said we were going to. No, you heard part of that story. You didn't hear all of these things. And as I come to this passage, I'm reminded that the person who is raising this objection about God probably has part of the story. In other words, if all they know about God is the previous paragraph describing God as being the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart and that God is practicing determinism in who he hardens or who he has mercy on, then they come to this statement and it's like a child who heard 
part of the conversation. We are like those children. We come to these confident conclusions. We either hear or say things that sound like this. If God chooses, then our choices don't matter. People who have most often been uncomfortable with the doctrines of predestination or election are usually people who can see the reality of human responsibility, but don't yet accept that it and predestination both exist and are left with the burden of trying to figure out which one exists. And the truth is, they both exist. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility both exist. When we hear part of the conversation, maybe we think only one is true or only the other one is true. And we feel frustrated trying to decide which is true. When it comes to the issue of God's prerogative, we could struggle with seeing a holy God preserving the rebellion of a sinner like Pharaoh. We could say there seems to be a false dichotomy. How can God be doing anything but insisting sinners repent and still be holy? And so this question comes up from this context. And we need, this, here's my need statement. We need to avoid the temptation to think like the fault finder thinks. There's a fault finder, for sure. There is someone wagging their finger in the face of God, saying, you must not be righteous. You remember, that's the whole nature of Romans, right? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And there is this accuser who's wagging his finger in the face of God, saying, aha, you are not righteous. You, in fact, can be blamed for the sinner's unrepentance. The need for us is to be careful that we do not think like that fault finder. I have told you, and I want to keep repeating it because I think it's so important for Bible study to have the context in mind. In Romans chapter 9, we are studying the intense sovereignty of God. And it is intense. In Romans chapter 10, we will be studying the sincere salvation of God. And in Romans chapter 11, like that, we will be studying the absolute sincerity of God. That God will do everything he has said he will do. Sovereignty, salvation, sincerity. In our text right here in front of us, these three verses, there are four questions asked. One of them, the one that launches the other three, is asked by the fault finder. How, how can we be blamed if God's in control? I mean, can't the one who's in control be blamed and not us? That's the question. That's from the fault finder. If he's in control, then we are not guilty of what he's doing. That's the fault finder. And you can see in the question from the fault finder that the fault finder understands the previous verses. God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he hardens. Listen, whatever we want to say about this hypothetical fault finder, 
they're paying attention to at least the previous verses. I mean, their objection comes logically from the previous verses. It makes sense. And then there are three other questions that are turned around to that fault finder. So what I want to do is I just want to follow the four questions, okay? I want to follow these four questions for us this morning. As we walk through these questions, I want to ask you, please, to be patient. Could you say, be patient? Here's what I mean by that. I am inviting you to not think like the fault finder. But let's not all stone the fault finder. Okay? Don't think like him. But it's also not our job to be judge, jury, and executioner of the fault finder because the truth is none of us are that far removed from the fault finder. And in fact, the only reason we are removed from the fault finder is because of the word of God. Well, here's what I mean. The fault finder has this small piece of the conversation and has come to an inaccurate conclusion. Like a child listening to part of a parent's conversation. We have been blessed with the whole conversation. And so, being sanctified by the truth. You understand that, right? You understand that your spiritual growth is happening by the truth. Jesus prayed that that would happen. In John 17, 17, he says, Father, regarding my people sanctify them by truth. Your word is true. We have the whole conversation. And so it's only by the grace of Scripture that we are set apart from the fault finder. We are being made distinct from the fault finder. We are being made holy from the sort of accusation or finger wagging that the fault finder would do. Here's an example Let's invite the fault finder to one more story in the Bible. Let's take them to Samuel. And let's talk about the day when David had decided that the Ark of the Covenant needed to be brought into the city. And there's a man walking alongside the cart that the Ark had been placed on. His name is Uzzah. And Uzzah sees the cart wobble. And he knows that the Ark is going to fall in the mud. And out of... Honor for the cart, rep, uh, for the ark, representing the presence of God, Uzzah reaches his hand out and steadies the ark and dies. His life is ended by a holy God because of his disobedience. Now, there's another part of the conversation. And the fault finder listens to that story. And truthfully, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but truthfully, maybe several of us have read that story and went, oh, those were good intentions. That was almost an act of worship. How did God find fault in Uzzah? Here is the issue, friend. He arrogantly believed that somehow his sinful hands were better than the mud. He somehow concluded that he was doing some righteous service to God by steadying the ark because the mud was unclean. So if you haven't heard the whole conversation, you don't know that Uzzah was doing no righteous service to the ark or God. Maybe we have felt sometimes 
Like it wasn't fair. And maybe that feeling has exposed an area that should be sanctified. We know the blood guiltiness of our hands when we read the scriptures. Our wicked heart is constantly lying to us, causing us to think maybe we're not as evil as the Bible has said. If we believe our own heart over the word of the Lord, we will come to the exact same conclusion the fault finder has. But instead, listen to the word of the Lord. Isaiah 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not short. The Lord's not weak. It's not like he can't reach sinners where they are, right? God can reach every sinner where they are. You should say amen. Every single sinner. The Lord's hand is not short so that he cannot save. And his ear is not dull. God hasn't lost his hearing in old age. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled and your fingers full of iniquity. And Yuza acted like that wasn't true. So as I preach this, and maybe you've already seen it in this first five minutes, I can get really aggravated with the fault finder. I can get really stirred up, and I can go to verbal war with the fault finder pretty quickly. And so I have determined and prayed this morning, Lord, I'm not that far removed from the fault finder. It's only by the grace of your word that I have seen the whole conversation, and I want to guard my delivery from being somehow proudly self-righteous in comparison to the fault finder. It is not by my doing that I'm not saying this exact same accusation against God. And so my hope is to stay very connected to my notes. You know, as I write these notes, I'm thinking carefully. I'm rewriting sentences, trying to make them most appropriate. And then as I preach, I glance at the notes and then say things that I feel. And what I feel is like I want to choke the fault finder. Okay? That's what I feel. So I'm going to stay to my notes because I don't have that written down anywhere. I'm going to choke the fault finder. That's not written down, so I'll be safer there, okay? All right. I want to be in these notes. I want to go through these four things, and I want to beg God to lead his word into our lives, either through or in spite of me. Okay? Let's pray. Father, uh, your word is good. It is so precise and so sharp that it divides these issues that are so delicate. How are you holy? and yet in any way active in the hard-hearted rebellion of a sinner such as Pharaoh. Oh, I struggle, especially if there's parts of the conversation that I have still ignored. My confession as I start is that you are holy. And so as your word declares your holiness and your spirit works, not because of my explanation, but even in spite of it. Minister your word into our hearts that your people would hear your word and know and believe and be glad that it is producing sanctification in us. In Christ Jesus' name, as the head of his church, we pray. Amen. 
okay, here's the four things that I think come out of frustration from this fault finder. Okay, so he's, he's frustrated, and we see these sorts of things. First of all, he's got the wrong question in mind. That one's pretty easy to see. The response from the Spirit is a response that exposes that he also has the wrong perspective, the wrong orientation, and the wrong prerogatives. Okay, so we've got frustration coming from four things that are wrong. Let's walk through what's wrong that makes this fault finder think he can accuse God of being unfair or unfit. The first one, he is frustrated, or they are frustrated, with the wrong question. So here's the question. Why does God find fault? Because if he's in control, who can possibly resist his will? If God is in ultimate control, how does he blame us for anything? Now, friend, please understand that that question, coming from a fault finder, means that the previous verses said exactly what we thought they meant. We didn't somehow miscommunicate. Oh, no, 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 God's not involved in human decision. If that were true, if God was not involved, if God chose you because you chose him, this is the time to say it. Because there's a fault finder wagging their finger in the face of God and saying, well, if he's choosing, then my choosing doesn't matter. And Paul could say, whoa, whoa, that's not what I meant to say. God only chooses you because you chose him. If that's an argument... Right now is the time for it because there is finger wagging going on because this fault finder heard the same thing I heard in the previous verses. So here's the claim. Who can be blamed? If he does what he does, then who can be blamed? For example, in Joshua chapter 11, verse 18, this is case in point. The Bible says that Joshua is on a military campaign. He's going from region to region, people group to people group, and all these people remain hard-hearted against Israel because God had hardened their hearts. Even, it says, to the point of destruction. And the question is, then all those people in Canaan who fought against the Lord's people, did it because God hardened their heart even to where they would be destroyed from the face of the earth? A people group wiped out because God hardened their heart. That's the sort of stuff the fault finder says, here's another piece of evidence. How can he blame us? For who can resist his will? Literally, resist means to be set against. Who can set themselves against the Lord? Who is man that he can defy the all-powerful God? We have to remember that throughout this whole section, Paul is arguing that Israel's current hard-heartedness does not defeat God's purpose. Who can set themselves against God's purpose? No one. Israel's rebellion is not unraveling God's redemptive plan. We will see that clearly in Romans 11. I've told you for the last several weeks, the same thing that's going to make the apostle burst into doxology, Lord willing, if we continue to walk in humility with the word, we will feel the same doxology in our own soul as we get to chapter 11 and see the sincerity of our God. When it comes to God's irresistible interfering, 
when it comes to God's irresistible interfering, we should be thankful. So, so the fault finder, don't be like the fault finder. Be the church. Be the bride of Christ. So don't look at God and say, your interfering could not be resisted. Be thankful for that. Let me give you some examples of what I mean. When it comes to your salvation, you could be tempted to think it was not right for God to interfere, to have mercy on who he wills and harden who he wills. It's not right. Let me ask you this question. How often have you told and celebrated the story of David in the valley with Goliath? How often have you told and celebrated the account of Moses being used by God to deliver people from the most powerful king on the planet? How often have you rehearsed the blessing of Abraham and Sarah having a son through which David and the Messiah would come? You've read the story and thank God for interfering when Joseph, I'm sorry, when uh, Joshua conquered Jericho. I reread again this week the account of Gideon's 300. The Midianites and God's interfering. When Nehemiah restores the city of Zion. When Peter heals sick and dying. When Paul and the other apostles turn the world upside down with the gospel. And we look at all those accounts and say, praise the Lord who interfered in an irresistible way. But then somehow, when it comes to me, it seems like he's trespassing. So church, don't be the fault finder. Praise God who interferes mercifully. Now, I know that one of the reasons we question God's prerogative is because we're not maybe convinced we're guilty. You've witnessed to lost people, and you hear their, their defense. You, you, boy, it seems universal, doesn't it? Like, is there a school for lost people that they go and get certified in, like, how to defend their lostness? Because they, they all say the same thing. They pass the test. You say, listen, I'm here to tell you about a Savior who will redeem you from the damnation of your sin's guilt. And they say, oh, I, I've done more good than... Oh, you talk to them too. I've done more good than bad. I'm pretty much a good person. And so one of the reasons we don't want to see a God interfering in our pretty much goodness is because we don't understand our absolute badness. To illustrate this, I have to take you back to Romans chapter 5. Turn back just a couple chapters, Romans chapter 5, and look with me at verse number 12. Romans chapter 5 was a chapter where the Holy Spirit was teaching us all about the universality of absolute sinfulness. And in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12, we read, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through that sin, so death spread to all men, how do we know? Because they sin. For sin indeed was in the world even before the law. So before God gave us a manual on what to do and not to do, even before that, sin was not being counted where there wasn't a law. You see that in verse 13? Sin was not being counted where there wasn't a law. However, death reigned from Adam to Moses. 
even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. There were people dying in their sin, even though their sin wasn't like Adam's sin. How did Adam sin? God said, Adam, don't do that. Then Adam did. That's how Adam's sin was. But before there was a law, before God ever said to people, don't do that, and they did it, they didn't sin like he did. And therefore, that sin wasn't counted against them. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? In other words, our righteous God, when he hadn't yet given instruction, if you accidentally or unknowingly violated his instruction, he wasn't condemning you for it. So the people who died before the law weren't dying because they explicitly disobeyed or obeyed explicit command, disobeyed explicit command. They were dying for another reason. What's that reason? They are guilty in Adam of sin. They have received the spirit of death as being a human. So when you talk to someone and they say, I think I've done more good than bad. Well, I'm not really here to argue that. I'm here to ask you, are you a descendant of Adam? Well, yes. Then, quite frankly, I don't care what you've done. You're guilty of sin and death in Adam. Now, listen, you say, well, that seems like kind of a weak argument. I'm just Listen, if you think that you can't be counted guilty by association with Adam, then you've just taken a big chunk of the gospel out. Because the gospel says you can be considered righteous in Christ. So if you don't think his work on the cross can be counted for you, then maybe you don't think that Adam's work in the garden can be counted to you either. But, of course, we all really, really, really hope that Christ's completed work of the cross can be counted for us, don't we? And the reason it can be is because there can be vicarious righteousness, alien righteousness, and there can be alien unrighteousness. Children, kids, you sin, right? Kids, you got kids? Jenks, you got some grandkids here. They're paying good attention back there. Okay? You've got sin, right? Right? Sin? Yes, we sin. Okay? It is evident in our sinning that we are sinners. That's what the verse I just read in chapter 5. How do you know you're a sinner? Because you sin. You know you're a sinner because you prove it all the time. You don't become a sinner by sinning. That's really important for us to see that. We are asking the wrong question, or we will be guilty of the fault finder's question, if we think, well, I wasn't really a sinner until I sinned, and I think I've done more good than sin, so I think I'm okay. So why is he getting to choose whether I am hard-hearted or forgiven? So kids, I want you to understand that we are proving, you and I, children, are proving that we are sinners. God did not force you to sin. We are all born with the ability to sin. God alone has the ability to save. You and I, kids, have the ability to sin. But it's only God who has the ability to save. And he will save all of those who come to him in faith. All of those who come to him in faith. Okay, children under the age of 13. Children under the age of 13. Say, God saves all who come to him in faith. That's a lot for kids. Okay. God saves all who come to him in faith. Okay? Ready? Say it with me. God saves all who come to him in faith. That went really well. 
Church, we have to be careful because when we come to the issue of our salvation, we have been so conditioned to observe decisionism. We've been so conditioned to look for the moment. I, I don't know, some of you may not, this context might seem really strange to you, but uh, one thing that was really common in my childhood was that I had a lot of friends who would write the date they got saved in the back of their Bible. Anybody ever done that? Maybe you have a Bible with the date in the back, and it's the day you got saved. And sometimes we're really conditioned to think that date is proof that I'm saved. I, I want to suggest that that is not true. That date is completely irrelevant. The Bible never asks you to try to have a good memory about the day you made a decision. The Bible asks you to have an honest assessment of today. Today, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit worthy of repentance. The Bible calls us to consider not our decisions, but our salvation from sin's bondage. We see the sovereign decree of salvation, and we think that God must have done something after our decision. I want you to know that if you have made a decision of faith, you did it because God worked first. You could go back to John chapter 3 and see the whole description of that. In fact, in fact, if you want to know about John, if you want to know about salvation from God, even before your decisionism, I would take you to John 3. So when we think somehow that we have induced God, we wind up asking the wrong question. We think somehow that we would have eventually come to a righteous confession because we're asking the wrong questions and therefore wagging our fingers in the face of God. But church, let's be thankful that our merciful God is interfering with an irresistible grace. Let's look at number two, the second part of the questioning. The spirit turns the questioning back to the fault finder and expresses that what they're actually saying is that they have a frustration with wrong perspective. He says this in verse 20. Who are you, comma, oh man? <laughs> I mean, you can hear Paul's tone there, right? You see, I'm not the only one that wants to choke the fault finder. I think Paul does too. <laughs> Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Paul responds with a lot of aggression. And the reason he's so emotional is because there are two really significant problems with the idea that man can levy an accusation against God. The first one is this. There is a presupposed idea that mere creatures are able to levy accusations against creator. That creatures are able to levy accusation against creator. <laughs> I heard a speaker once he was doing a panel. Some of you know who this is and what he said, and it's hilarious, and I enjoy watching it over and over. But he was on a panel, and the question came to the panel, if God is love and mercy, then why do we see, when sin originally happened, God being so heavy-handed and wrathful in the garden? And this guy says, wait, wait, wait. He says, let me get this straight. A creature of the dirt defied their holy creator, even though the creator had told them, in the day you defy my command, you will surely die. And yet, they did not die that day, but rather through sacrifice, they were clothed. 
and allowed to live in anticipation that salvation was coming. And we want to know, has God been too heavy-handed? And then he says, what's wrong with you people? And some people chuckle, and he says, no, I'm serious. And everyone went, okay. Maybe you can Google it from what I just said. Maybe you can't. That's okay. A creature from the dirt. Oh, man, who are you? So that's the first problem. The creature of the dirt has elevated themselves to some sort of position in their imagination where they're able to be the jury of God's behavior. Here's the second problem. The second issue that raises such emotion in Paul from this, issue, from this question is that this question would ignore the fact that God's sovereignty is fiercely holy. Maybe one reason why we struggle with the divine prerogative of God is because we have domesticated God. We treat God like a house cat instead of a lion. Maybe... Maybe all of us do it sometimes. Maybe some of us do it a lot of the times. To help us understand the real danger with that, let me read for you a quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The young girl named Susan is asking questions about Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Susan asks if Aslan is a man, and the character, Mr. Beaver, Says Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the woods, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, said Mr. Beaver. And make no mistake, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either brave or more likely just silly. Then Susan says he isn't safe. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what we're telling you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. The king, I tell you. Lewis does a really good job painting a beautiful picture of the incarnate Savior. We have to guard ourselves through prayer and examination of Scripture, through the edification of each other as saints, to, to guard ourselves against this supposed caricature of our Lord as domesticated, as tame, as comfortable, or as safe. But then all the while remind each other, he is a lion, he is not safe, but he is good, he is the king. Much of our uncertainty with God's divine prerogative comes from our perspective of both himself and ourselves. We would say things like, how can God limit any sinner from his table? And it's just, I would beg you, it's just the wrong perspective. 
we should ask ourselves, how can a holy God invite any sinner to his table? Hebrews 2, verse 6, echoes that. It has been testified, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. What is man, yet you have crowned him in glory and honor? The third expression of frustration comes in the second part of verse 20. It's frustration with wrong orientation. We got the wrong question, wrong perspective, wrong orientation. He says this, well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? I I thought this verse was especially relevant right now, right? You've got shopkeepers, store owners, business managers who are being told what they can and can't do in their store. I mean, the thought that you would go to the potter's shop and say to the potter, you can do this and not this. The potter would look back at you and say, you're crazy. This is my shop. Please leave. It would be insane for anyone to tell the potter what he could or couldn't make in his shop. Now, flip that on its head. It would be insane for the clay to tell the potter what he could and couldn't do in his shop. And that's, that's the question that's turned back on the fault finder. Will the clay say to the potter, what do you think you're doing? If you look at verse 21, you find that the clay is levying an accusation because it doesn't want to be a vessel of dishonor. Now, I want to make sure you understand. When the passage says that the potter makes some vessels for honor and some for dishonor, I still do not conclude that that means entirely that some vessels are made to be destroyed. Okay? Now, you can work that out. I told you last week, there are some things you can study, and you can work that out. That's fine. I personally do not believe, and I know I'm disagreeing with maybe a couple people in the room, I personally do not believe that there are some who are created to be destroyed. Maybe that's not the way you would word it. I do not believe some created to be destroyed. Now, here's what I mean by that. I cannot see any human potter saying, I'm going to spend the day molding this piece of clay and shaping a vase or a vessel. Because I really look forward to putting it in the fire and then taking it out when it's all done and smashing it on the ground. I don't think that there is any potter who's doing work that mindlessly, pointlessly. So even though there are some vessels, vessels that will ultimately be destroyed, I don't think that the potter is working that aimlessly or pointlessly. However, I do see that some vessels are honorable and some are dishonorable. 2 Timothy 2.20, Paul tells Timothy, In a great house, aren't there vessels of gold and silver and some of wood and clay? Some of honor and some of dishonor? Here's what I want you to understand. He's not saying, aren't there some things that the potter makes and then smashes? (laughs) He's not saying that. He's saying, aren't there some pots that are made for cooking with and some pots that are chamber pots children ask your parents on the way home what is a chamber pot (laughs) of all the really sacred conversations you can have (laughs) that's the point why do you make pots that serve different purposes i think purpose is the key the dishonorable vessel 
was not dishonorable from its inception. In other words, when God created, he saw everything he had done and said, it is good. The vessel becomes dishonorable by its sinning. And not just its individual sinning, but by belonging to a race of sinners. Some will say that God does indeed make evil men, and then he punishes them, punishes them for their wickedness. God certainly has the power to do that, but he does not have the authority to do that. To make a vessel, make him sin, and then punish him for what God made him do. He has the power to do that, but he does not have the authority to do that. If we understand that his authority is tied to his character, to which R.C. Sproul says, if God had created innocent beings, forced them to do wickedness, and then punished them for their wickedness, he would be violating his own holiness and justice. So please, so that we don't think like the fault finder, understand original sin. Do not forget at the heart of the gospel is our guilt in Adam and the ability to be made righteous in Christ. Let me go to point four, just for sake of time. Point four, frustration with some wrong priority. It's just wrong priority. I mean, when you think about redemptive history, what do you think the goal is? When you think of redemptive history, what do you think the goal is? Is God pleased with the expression of his justice? What do we think the goal is? What's the priority here? Let me read verse 21. Romans 9, 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? That's a vivid illustration, right? I mean, you got, you got clay laying around. He's throwing it on the wheel. He's making things. Doesn't he get to make what he wants to make? Yeah. He gets to make what he wants to make. He gets to do what he wants to do. Now, I understand there's a much broader question about what's God like and what does he want to do. This illustration is vivid, but it's, it's a little deficient, right? Okay? So let's say, let's say uh, we have uh, a potter come up here. We say, okay, potter, um, we've taken a vote. And we've decided you can only from now on make flower vases. Only make flower vases. Skinny neck, wide bottom, that's all you can do. Uh, well, I'm the potter. Don't I get to do what I want to do? We would say, well, yeah, yeah, you do. Okay, here. But this breaks down because God is being depicted as the potter. And in this illustration where God's the potter, God not only makes the vases, he made the clay that he shapes into the vase. He made the water that he uses to shape the clay. He made the carbon matter that he uses to fire the furnace. God has the prerogative to do what God wants to do. Now, one of the problems I think is that we're more prone to be a fault finder if we don't remember what God is doing. What what is God doing? In other words, what's the Bible about? What's the whole story about? What's, it's called the meta-narrative. I want you to really learn the word meta-narrative. Could you say the word meta-narrative? I want you to know what that means. Meta, it means the story that's over all the stories. All the little stories, 
are telling the big story. Okay, so there's a big story in all the Bible. And, and maybe you don't know what the meta-narrative of the Bible is. I want you to understand it right now, right now today. And if, if you want to debate this with me, I would be glad to, because I'm pretty convinced that this is the meta-narrative of the Bible. The meta-narrative of the Bible is the glory of God as revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the meta-narrative of the Bible. The glory of God. And we see it from Genesis to Revelation in the person and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So, this priority of God glorifying himself means that God has the right. Please notice with me that the question isn't, does God have the power? The question is, does God have the right? Does God have the judicial right to harden Pharaoh's heart? Let me ask a question in another context. Ananias and Sapphira come into church and they say, hey, we want to give some offering. We sold some stuff. Here's the whole sale price of the land. And what does God do? Kills them, right? Divine prerogative? Does, that okay? does God have the judicial right to kill them? Yes, in the context that they're sinners. They've rebelled. The wage for their rebellion is death. So he asks here, does God, the potter, have the right over the clay to do what he wills to do? God has the right to appoint sinful man to dishonor. So much more so than the potter has the right to make certain vessels for chamber pots and cooking pots. So here's what I want to say. I want to finish right here. We can be sympathetic, right? I mean, the person asking this question, I hear my voice sometimes in that question. When I think something has happened in my life that just isn't the way I would have ordained it to be, I would say, you're in control. Why aren't you being better than this? I can hear my voice in that question. So I have to be humble and and sympathetic with the questioner. But as the redeemed child of God, having the spirit of truth now living in me, having the blindness and deadness of my mind and heart peeled back, I cannot any longer say the same thing. As the church, I cannot say or echo what the fault finder is saying. Now, you don't have to use the same vocabulary to describe predestination or election. You really don't. It's okay. I I hope that you won't make me use your vocabulary, and I hope that I'm not making you use my vocabulary. You, You choose and find biblical vocabulary for grace and election and predestination. But the church is being set apart by the word, sanctified. We do not sound like fault finders anymore because of the word. There is this common criticism of God, right? You've you've talked to lost people, and one of the things they say about God is if God is good and God's in control, then why do bad things happen? That's the fault finder. And church, we cannot sound anything like that. 
because of the sanctification of the word. But if, regarding salvation, if we become disagreeable to God's sovereignty because we feel like it diminishes our importance to our salvation, then we should reevaluate all of our vocabulary. All of our similarity to the fault finder. You know, we think sometimes if God is this powerful and this in control, and if he chooses to apply his control and decrees even to salvation, then don't we just become mindless robots? This point I added this morning. I added this statement this morning. I was getting ready to come in to the office, and I was thinking about my dog. I have two dogs. One's a border collie. He's getting older. He's about 13. He's looking for a good home. My border collie is getting very anxious in his old age. Pretty good dog. Mine's pretty well. He's been taught from a puppy to do what he's told. He does pretty well. He does new tricks, but he minds pretty well, with one exception. A thunderstorm or the 4th of July. Our border collie is absolutely out of his mind during a thunderstorm. That same dog that will sit, lay down, be quiet, go lay over there, do whatever, that same dog who will do all those things on command, a thunderstorm kicks up. If he's outside in the yard, you can't catch him. That dog is out of its mind when there's a thunderstorm. And I want you to understand that you think, well, I'm a mindless robot. Yeah. (laughs) When it comes to sin and your natural inclination to keep doing it, you were out of your mind. But a spirit of truth graciously interferes and brings you back into reasonable response to the gospel. You made a reasonable response to the gospel if you're a believer. That is human responsibility on display. You absolutely did that, but not on your own. Not on your own. My border collie, his name's Mojo, my border collie eventually stops barking. Do you know why? We have three things. Well, there's four, but I can't tell you the fourth one. We have three things. First, we bring him in the garage and turn the radio on so he can't hear Second, we have one of these collars that like releases like calming odor. Like it's supposed to, I don't, I don't understand, whatever. Amazon reviewed it very high. We put this collar on him and it's supposed to calm him down, okay? And then third, he wears a muzzle. When he's out of his mind, someone else has to interfere and make him act orderly. And sinner, you were out of your mind in sin. And the Holy Spirit interferes and brings us to orderly human response of faith. In John chapter 13, because this is one of the big issues, right? In John chapter 13, we read the account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He's down there washing their feet. Whose feet does he wash? Judas's feet. 
one author says, this expression of the humility of the Savior, as the Savior knelt down to wash their feet, even the feet of his betrayer, he was once again opening wide the gates of repentance. Let me suggest to you that sinners who are out of their mind with sin need more than invitations. Oh, how I invite our dog to stop barking. The dog needs more than an invitation. As a sinner, I needed more than an invitation. I needed intervention, divine intervention. And the Savior is the one who is repeatedly opening the gates of repentance to sinners. We have no ground to find fault in the Lord. There is, there's, there is nothing about the fault finder that should appeal to us. He is not safe, but he is good. He's the king. Let's pray. Father, um, we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. A hard truth comes up about you, and we have in our flesh that lingers, we have this temptation to feel accusation against you. I feel it. Prone to accuse even the God that I love. Lord, take our hearts. Seal it. Take our hearts and bind it to the truth of our hope in you. And guard us even from our own fault finding. Father, also make us to be more patient with those who still feel like there's fault in you. Make us to be gracious and loving because we confess in humility that only by your word have we heard this whole conversation about your goodness. We know that there is no unrighteousness and there's no potential for unrighteousness. There's no shadow of turning. When you would swear your promises, you would swear them by the very name of your character. And so, Lord, cause us to continue to grow by your word in the glad confession that you are not safe, you are not domesticated, but you are our God and you are merciful in Christ's name. Amen.